This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Florida certainly changed forever because of that awful storm. Hurricane Ian, it just devastated areas of southwest Florida. The death toll continues to rise. It's a terrible situation for thousands of families, potentially millions of people. This, they say, is shaping up to be a hurricane more fatal than Hurricane Andrew in 1992. And having lived in South Florida, that was the kind of hurricane that left its mark on South Florida to this day. And so what we're hearing about Ian is that it's going to be another one of those storms that shapes the future of Florida. So we're going to talk to Craig Allen, chief meteorologist at WCBS 880. Craig, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure. So let, let's talk about these hurricanes. I, in my younger days in this business, I covered numerous hurricanes, uh, especially in Florida, where I worked in Miami for three years. This past hurricane that just devastated uh, cities, mm-hmm. towns in, yep. Yep. in Florida. You know, obviously the death toll continues to rise, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the saddest part about this. With all the warnings that we put out, uh, the death toll is still continuing to rise and is above the 100 mark already. And it just goes to show who's got the upper hand in this. And I think the uh, the National Hurricane Center did a splendid job on, uh, on tracking Ian um, until the very last moment. And that's not to put them down in any way. It's just to say that Ian decided 
decided to make a little bit more of a right-hand turn. So there were great preparations in Tampa, and they were ready for anything. And there were great preparations, and there should have been great preparations from Fort Myers and Naples and all the way on up towards the Tampa Bay area, St. Petersburg and Clearwater, because there were general hurricane watches and hurricane warnings in effect for that whole area. And eventually the hurricane warning area, which means it's imminent, was narrowed down to just about within the cone on the right hand side of the cone that it was expected, but definitely was within the cone and hit the Fort Myers area, unfortunately, uh, the hardest. Isn't that what happens in so many of these cases is that it's yeah. not always an exact science. I mean, it, you know, this is mother nature, mm-hmm. but you do the best you can to warn the public. And I think in this case, there were warnings. Many. There were several days of warnings. But is it that people become complacent? You know, what happens? Oh, there's a couple of things that are going on here. And, uh, you know, not to minimize the the excessive amount of, of sadness and, and, and danger that still continues uh, down around the Fort Myers area because people have to try to get back into their homes and there's there's so much to clean up. But I think complacency is not necessarily the biggest problem here. There were plenty of warnings that went into effect for the West Coast of Florida, as you mentioned. I think what may have happened was the extreme intensification of Ian in such a short period of time. Probably one of the hardest things for the National Hurricane Center to predict. And if you were expecting the worst of the storm in, let's say, six to 10 hours, it came in in four to eight hours. And if that's the case, anyone who is sitting back, and a lot of folks do this, I, I fully understand, sitting back and saying, I don't have to leave, I don't have to leave, and then suddenly, boy, I better leave, because I know I went through that with Sandy. We have to take into account that the extreme intensification and that slightly more right-hand turn may have caught people off guard. It shouldn't have. I'm not trying to blame them. It shouldn't have because when you're under a watch, you should be ready to pick up and go instantly. But I think maybe some people were caught by the speed, the intensification, and therefore the size of the storm also much, much bigger than Charlie in 2004. And so the hurricane effects were already being felt while Ian himself was still well offshore. Looking back through history, Mm -hmm. where does Hurricane Ian stand Ian is going to be one of, well, for the Gulf Coast, I believe it's one of six in uh, in the last two decades. And Ian was a very high category four, most likely would have been a category five had he been over water maybe another two hours or so. I mean, the intensification process was was uh, so fast. The only thing that limited him was that we have very shallow coastal waters off the west coast of Florida, and you need deep, warm water. Uh, I think maybe the uh, the warm water along the, uh, the coastline definitely caused the intensification along the coast there, along from Fort Myers all the way on up towards Tampa, if it was going to go in that direction. But it was mainly when it came off the west coast of Cuba, 
went past the Keys and then went up beyond Naples and towards Fort Myers in that very deep warm water. It did not upwell cooler water from the bottom. And then when it got to the coast of Florida, it was already very well formed. The water off Florida, that shallow water, is exceptionally warm. So we were very, very close to getting a Category 5, which puts it at the top of the scale. So, it, you know, it, it ranks right up there with Andrew. It ranks right up there with Charlie. It's just that the size of this storm was even bigger. So I would say in terms of today's dollars, obviously, it's one of the biggest disasters that Florida has seen. And even if we go back to the dollar figures, of Charlie and Andrew, this still probably would rank right up there because of the size of the storm. It didn't seem like it was or it has been a particularly active hurricane. It has not. You're correct. And why do you think that is? Does it just depend on the temperature of the water and mm-hmm. what's coming off the coast of Africa? What, why, why was it not as active as perhaps it has been in the past? You know, the meteorologists will be looking at this because it was supposed to be a very active season, almost, almost as active as last year. There were two things that I noticed uh, during the course of the summer season where August was exceptionally quiet, obviously. And then September started ramping up beyond the peak date. One was there was a tremendous amount of dust in the atmosphere that came off the Saharan desert that will inevitably keep all systems from forming because it needs warm water. A hurricane thrives on warm or hot water, uh, anywhere from 85 to 90 degrees and above. But if it doesn't have that hot water to work with, and it's got dust, well, then obviously a lot of these uh, systems that came off the Africa coast as well were being hindered and hampered by the lack of perfect conditions. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry to interrupt, Craig. Yeah, go ahead. I have never heard about the dust. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've never. So so explain that to me. All right. When when the winds are from an east to west direction coming across Africa and coming across through what we call the intertropical convergence zone, and it's taking dusty, dry, hot air off the desert into the Atlantic, the deep Atlantic and, and South Atlantic, you're not going to be able to have a storm develop the way it should, because it, like I said, it thrives on, on hot waters and needs that latent heat condensation. The Atlantic did not have that through the course of the mid and latter part of the summer season. It was just too dusty. Conditions were definitely hindering any kind of development. And also, now this is a term you might have heard, wind shear. A hurricane needs to have, like a chimney, a vent that goes straight up, and that's the eye. And it vents out all this tropical warmth and humidity and energy through that vent. If it's not a straight vent and you have wind shear, you're going to have trouble getting that hurricane to become a typical tropical system that has a center core and thunderstorms around the center of the core. So again, what's happening here is if there's wind shear, blowing back against what is supposed to be this rising air, 
you're almost making it like, how can I, uh, what, what's a good analogy? Like a crooked chimney, all right? A chimney that is out of whack. The air cannot go freely flowing up through the center of the storm. You've got the wind shear pushing away at it, and so the hurricane cannot form the way it should. Think of these things. I, this is what I do. I think of these things as as live objects and to survive, they need to do this to be uh, hindered. This is what happens. And those are the two biggest factors, I think, that occurred during the course of the summertime that kept the Atlantic very, very quiet. And then conditions got better as we went through the course of the season, right past the middle portion of September. And as the Saharan dust was limited in the atmosphere, uh, that completely stopped. Wind shear had stopped to a, to, you know, to a certain extent, enough to allow this storm to get such a, a good start that you then had several storms. You had Fiona and uh, Ian coming back to back across the South Atlantic in an area that was perfectly favorable for two hurricanes to develop. Mm, okay, so looking ahead... We have, what, another month or so? Did, did I baffle you with all that? <laughs> it, it was, well, I mean, listen, it, it's it's science. Yes, it's very interesting. much so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you introduced a few things there about hurricanes that I did not know. So I, I appreciate your expertise. Again, hurricanes absolutely need perfect conditions for them to survive and grow. And there were I, we just did not have those conditions in the Atlantic. That's the simple way of putting it. And then once Fiona developed and once uh, Ian developed, we had perfect conditions for these to develop and intensify very rapidly, especially Ian. Uh, she, uh, we did just seeing the the damage there. And was it the storm surge? Was it the winds? I mean, what okay. caused the bulk of the damage there? All right, with with Ian, it was all three of the major factors that caused the damage. I'm going to go back for a second here, and with Fiona, when she went across uh, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, and and even a small portion of Haiti, and then the Bahamas, and and all the way up to Canada, by the way. Uh, so that was a pretty unique storm. But with Fiona. It was more so the rainfall. There are three things that a hurricane can produce, and it could be extremely dangerous. It is the wind and a storm surge and the rainfall. With Fiona, it was the rainfall. Now, Fiona was a Category 1, and the categories, they refer only to the wind speed of a storm. So there's category one, two, three, four, and five being the worst. A category one storm to be upgraded from a tropical storm to a hurricane category one, you need 75 mile per hour winds. And then it goes up, you know, incrementally. Uh, once you get to 150 miles per hour, you are at a high category four. And if Ian had hit 155, he would have been a category five. There have been very few hurricanes that have ever done anything like that. But that being said, there are the three things that hurricanes could do. And with Fiona, it was the rainfall. And I think what happened across Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and all the way on up into uh, Canada, <laughs> I mean, it was a long trip for, for this storm, is that it was only a category one. And people were most likely saying that category one, oh, it can't be so bad. How bad can a category one be? 75 mile per hour winds, we will survive that. 
Well, again, categories only refer to the wind. The rainfall absolutely inundated Puerto Rico, as well as uh, Dominican Republic, and on up through the Bahamas. Uh, the, the, the winds and the storm itself had picked up so much moisture, and then it throws it against this mountainous terrain, especially on the western portions of the island, and it just wrings it out. So there were rainfall amounts there of 20, 25, 30 inches of rain. So in my opinion, I think, and I'm sure they're already working on something like this, but I think hurricanes should be rated for not just winds in their category, but should be rated for the rainfall as some kind of category, uh, major, moderate, severe. And the same thing with storm surge. There should be a category for that. So people don't just focus on the wind speed. That's why Fiona was was so deadly uh, herself. It wasn't the wind. It was the rain. Now, let's go to Ian. Ian was all three. Ian became a strong category four, had huge amounts of rainfall. Even uh, as it went past the western tip of Cuba, it was still in the developing stages, and it was pushing water towards the Florida coastline. Uh, so that's your storm surge. And the storm surge continued to grow and grow. The more the wind strengthened, the, the more the storm intensified. You're pushing more water towards the coastline, at least from, from Fort Myers on south because of the position of the storm. And you then had ex an extreme amount of storm surge, tidal flooding, whether it was high tide or not, doesn't matter, because you were pushing in water that was anywhere from 10 to 15 feet higher than it should be at any given time. So there's your storm surge. You also had 10, 15, 20 inches of rainfall. And of course, you had the high magnitude of wind. So all three were the reason for the devastation in the uh, southern portion of Florida. Now, I'm going to jump to something else here, and that is you saw the uh, the video, I'm sure, of Tampa and Tampa Bay, and all the water was gone. It was pushed out into the Gulf of Mexico. And that is for the same reason, but in reverse. In other words, the wind around a tropical system, the wind around any low pressure area blows counterclockwise. So if you picture a map and you take a storm and put it off of Fort Myers, the wind in the forward right quadrant of that storm is blowing out into the Atlantic. It's blowing from northeast down to southwest, whereas the wind under the storm was blowing right into Fort Myers. It was coming from a south or even southeasterly direction, uh, depending upon where you were. And of course, you've got that oblique coastline of, of the west coast of Florida. So you had all these factors that were so dead set against any kind of of being able to survive the uh, uh, the floods and the rain and and wind in any kind of fashion that would allow your your buildings or your houses to stand and unfortunately as we said life itself also unfortunately perished because of all three factors here yeah so many people in florida right now trying to rebuild trying to uh, you know, yep. be positive about what's ahead, even though it's so difficult. At I will say so. this, and of course, I, I I can only say it as 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 one human telling all those folks, you know, how how awful everybody else obviously feels across the country, and that you will get there. Um, it took many years here on Long Island for people to rebuild from Sandy 
which was a category one moving into the Jersey Shore. And um, I mean, there's still still places across Long Island and New Jersey that have not completely redeveloped yet. So it may take a long time, but hang in there. It it does happen. Once you get your electricity back, life will start trying to return to normal for you. Wasn't Sandy about 10 years ago exactly? It was another October storm, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. It was a late October storm, 2012. It was late October 2012. And uh, so Sandy was starting to, as she made her way towards the coast, was starting to turn into more of a nor'easter coastal type system, like a hybrid type of uh, uh, hurricane. But nonetheless, it became a massive storm that did a lot of damage and therefore gained the moniker Superstorm Sandy. Uh, So you can call it either one. That was followed by some cold air that came down. And I'm not quite sure how many folks would remember this if they were in the Northeast. But just a week later, it snowed in New York City and throughout the Northeast because of uh, the change in the weather pattern that Sandy produced. That was, I was in the middle of that storm. I I remember that, you know, before the storm, we were all talking about how, oh, a hurricane hasn't hit New York City. That's um, right. Right? And then all of a sudden that storm, super storm hits. And I, I was in the Rockaways, which uh, if you're not familiar with New York City, Craig, tell tell people about the Rockaways. Okay. Well, first of all, Sandy did something extremely unique and made a left-hand turn into the coast. Most hurricanes make that gradual right-hand turn and head on out to sea. They may clip the coast. They may run up the I-95 corridor. But Sandy did just the opposite and got up to just about the central New Jersey latitude and then just hit the brakes and turned left right into New Jersey. So that was the first thing, which brought in a tremendous storm surge. Some rain, uh, the rain wasn't as bad as what we just uh, saw with Ian or Fiona. Some rain, but certainly strong winds, 90 to 100 miles per hour. And the Rockaways is a spit of land off of uh, one of the boroughs of of, uh, New York City, Queens. And they extend south of um, of uh, JFK Airport. Whenever any of you fly into JFK, you see Jamaica Bay, you see the Atlantic Ocean, and there's a spit of land out there known as the Rockaways. And it can only be maybe, what, five, six miles wide? And it's about... 10 to 15 miles long, I believe. And that kind of spit of land continues all the way on out across Long Island, too. There are barrier beaches out there, and those are the first things that get hit by an excessive amount of storm surge. So not only did that happen, Jeff, as I'm sure you remember, the storm surge hit uh, the Rockaways, but then because gas mains had ruptured, and electrical lines were falling. I remember that in the midst of extreme flooding, there were fires. Places were burning down in the midst of of that flooding. Am am I correct? You are correct because I lived it. I was, as I said, in, in the Rockaways in about five feet of water. And behind me, there were fires burning down blocks of buildings. I mean, it was incredible. It was it was really a remarkable uh, for lack event. of any better word for for lack of any better word. That's almost like being in hell. It, <laughs> right? it, was, it, it looked like it. And, and it in did. fact, we had to go on TV because there were firefighters and police officers trapped where I was. And they said, wow. hey, Jeff, can you go on TV? 
and tell people that we're here. I mean, it was really incredible. And in fact, I might actually put some of the photographs on my Instagram because it was, I, I, in addition to covering the storm, I was just taking photographs of the images because it was just so uh, incredible seeing people trying to evacuate through the high water, seeing the concern on the faces of the firefighters and and police officers. And the other thing about the Rockaways that people don't know is a lot of law enforcement lives there. Right. (laughs) They they live there, firefighters. So they were impacted while they were trying to respond. Their their homes were being impacted. Their homes are being impacted and they're trying to get away from fires in in, in flooded streets. It's it's just such a horrible uh, sight to even picture. But yeah, uh, yeah, I, I do remember that. So, you know, so we're talking about Sandy and that was a category one uh, but now you're talking about Ian, a high category four, and you could just imagine you're adding the storm surge and the rain to those strong winds, to the strongest, almost the strongest category winds. And I, I just feel for for the devastation that that took yeah. place down in the Fort Myers area. Yeah. You just cannot underestimate these storms. Not you at all. Really have to pay attention and take them seriously. Greg Allen, appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Jeff. It was a pleasure. My colleague, Sarah Ewald Weiss, is a CBS News reporter. She covers politics and the economy. She's joining us now. Sarah, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. So here we are about a month out from the midterms. What are you seeing? Uh, Especially, let's start in Pennsylvania, because it looks like that Senate race is tightening. Yes. You know what? The Pennsylvania Senate race is one of the top most watched races in the country. And and it's important because right now we have a 50-50 split Senate. There is a retiring Republican senator in Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey. And so this is one seat where Democrats believe uh, they have are in the strongest position to flip the seat uh, and maintain their majority or perhaps even grow their majority. You know, throughout the entire summer, the Democratic candidate in this race, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, had a substantial lead in a lot of the polling uh, over his Republican opponent, Dr. Mehmet Oz, uh, known as America's doctor, the celebrity doctor. But in the past couple of weeks, we have seen a number of those substantial leads in the polls tighten dramatically. Uh, And so we've seen it come down from more than 10 points to, in some cases, six points and even closer, uh, depending on specifically which poll you look at. Uh, And this is something that the campaigns had said is expected as we get closer to an election. You know, voters in the state start to come home. Pennsylvania, of course, a state that President Trump won in 2016. President Joe Biden won in 2020. Uh, so it has gone both ways and it has been a very tight race statewide in in these cases. Uh, so this is looking like it's going to be a bit of a nail biter as we as we move into the final stretch here. Uh, a lot of different ads going up on the air, millions in dollars in spending uh, playing out in this. And, and the issues really here are coming down to the economy as the top one. Uh, abortion rights is something Democrats are really playing up in terms of protecting abortion rights. And then on the flip side, Republicans have been really driving home this narrative about crime increasing. Uh, and that has come down to these candidates really being focused on these issues in the final stretch. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what else happens, if we'll see any 
so-called October surprises in this specific race before November 8th. And Fetterman's health has been a factor in this race as well. Has it been a problem for him? Has it been an issue for him in the in the closing stretch of the campaign? You know what? It has been something that has been focused on a lot. Uh, you know, he had a stroke in May right before that primary. He was off the campaign trail almost the entire summer while he was recovering. And he got back on the campaign trail in August. I was there for the rally he had in Erie, Pennsylvania, and it was noticeable. And he did say in an interview before that rally that he was still having some auditory processing issues. He said it essentially meant he sometimes misses a word or skips a word. Uh, And it did show he was struggling in some places to speak clearly. With that said, however, uh, since then, he has been physically out on the campaign trail. Some of the speech challenge does appear to continue. Um, He claims that his doctors have been saying he will recover 100% and it continues uh, to be an ongoing effort to recover, uh, but that is moving smoothly ahead for him. What has happened in this, though, is his Republican opponent, Dr. Oz, has really raised this issue on the campaign trail uh, because Fetterman had not been doing a lot of interviews. He had been out campaigning, but he hasn't really been answering questions from the press. Uh, And so Dr. Oz had accused him of hiding from the media, hiding from voters uh, in terms of those questions being asked, and also potentially even hiding behind his health, whether his health was the issue or he was hiding behind that as excuse not to engage. Uh, And this really came to a head when they were talking about the debates uh, for this race. The Senate race is extremely important there, as I mentioned. And so, of course, the candidates are expected to get up and really share their views and debate each other. Uh, There was a proposal for multiple debates throughout the course of this September and October, uh, but they were rejected. And Fetterman has uh, finally agreed to do a a debate in October, October 25th, uh, but that'll be the only debate that voters in Pennsylvania get to see between the two candidates. And so this has continued to be an issue on the campaign trail and one that Dr. Oz and other Republicans are really pressing home what's going on really with his health. He has to release his health records, which hasn't happened. uh, And so that continues to be a conversation and one worth having. Let's turn from Pennsylvania to North Carolina which is a race that doesn't seem to have garnered a lot of attention nationwide. What is happening in North Carolina? You know, it it doesn't seem like it's garnering a lot of attention nationwide, uh, but this is a race that's worth keeping a close eye on. And some of the polling more recently has shown uh, that the Democrat in that race, Jerry Beasley, a former chief justice in the state, uh, is going up against Republican Ted Budd in a way that is closer than some had expected. North Carolina is a little bit funky because it has been a state that Republicans have won statewide with President Trump in 2016, in 2020. Uh, But keep in mind, North Carolina does have a Democratic governor, and that governor did win re-election in 2020. Uh, So a bit of purple, a bit of crossover voters in that state. Sherry Beasley has been running a campaign really as an outsider uh, and talking about coming into Washington as an outsider. She's also really focused on abortion rights as a part of her messaging. Uh, And so it's interesting to see where this race will go. Ted Budd, current congressman, uh, who has been 
kind of quiet, honestly, on the campaign trail, not doing as many events. That has been something his Democratic opponent has seized on. Uh, and also pointing out that he has, while he's focused largely on the economy when he is campaigning and in his advertising, uh, he has taken taken some stances uh, that she's hit on, including uh supporting a federal abortion ban as one. And that is a state where abortion rights remain protected, but it's one of the only Southern states where those haven't been rolled back since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So it has been a part of that narrative. We're discussing Senate races here across the country. And in Ohio, you have J.D. Vance. You know, there's there's some Republicans who've been disappointed by the race that he's been running against Tim Ryan, the Democrat. What do you think about the the final weeks of that campaign and how things might shape up? You know, some strategists have said this is the sleeper race to keep an eye on. Others have kind of laughed me out of the room when I bring it up. Uh, So there's a lot of different opinions on what's going on in Ohio. Ohio is a red state and has been in 2020 and 2016, uh, with the exception of Senator Sherrod Brown, who is a Democrat who won re-election in 2018. But that's when Democrats had a ton of momentum in that midterm year. Uh, With that said, I did speak to a Republican strategist this week who said that Tim Ryan, the Democrat there, he doesn't expect him to win, uh, put that out there. Uh, But he did say he's running a near perfect campaign for a Democrat in the state. He gave props to his team for that. Ryan has been largely focused on the economy, on bringing jobs back, on manufacturing, on trade. Uh, That has been his messaging, and he's been hammering it home. Uh, Something I find interesting is he's off on this worker-first express bus tour throughout the state. Um, I say that's interesting because you think America first, you think of President Trump, and now he's doing this worker-first branding uh, for his campaign. On the flip side, uh, the strategist did tell me, he said, J.D. Vance is in a state that should be a Republican state uh, to lose in 2022. Uh, And he says, despite having nearly a full deck, he's really stumbled here. Uh, Part of it originally was growing pains as a first time candidate, but but the criticism has continued. The polls in this race have tightened some, uh, but I think there is still some skepticism whether a Democrat, especially in a year where Republicans have the overall advantage and Democrats are the majority in Congress, whether a, a Democrat could actually win here is up for much debate at this stage. And in a lot of these races across the country, fundraising is key. Who's leading uh, when it comes to fundraising? Yeah, so fundraising is huge in this midterm cycle. Uh, We've seen a number of record-breaking numbers from Senate candidates, specifically Democratic candidates. And, you know, the most recent quarter closed at the end of September uh, in Georgia. We saw Reverend Warnock, the Democrat there, raising more than $26 million in a quarter. Uh, Looking at Pennsylvania, Fetterman raised $22 million in Ohio, Tim Ryan raising 17 million. So these these numbers are massive numbers uh, for Democrats. And they've really trounced the Republicans who have released their numbers so far. There is a filing deadline in mid-October, uh, and that'll be interesting because that's when we'll know where 
where all the candidates stand in terms of how much they raised in the last quarter and also how much they have to spend in the final stretch. Uh, with that said, this is the, the thing about fundraising. Fundraising is very important, but it's obviously not everything, as we saw in 2020 when some Democrats posted record numbers and still lost their races just based on the makeup of the states. Uh, so not only is it interesting to look at these numbers because it means these candidates have the resources at their disposal, especially in these most competitive races, uh, but also it's curious to see where these donations are coming from. Uh, if they're coming from in the state, obviously that means there's more support in the state. That could help translate to votes in a different way than massive amounts of money coming in from out of state. Uh, at the same time, when you see huge fundraising numbers specifically for candidates fundraising, that means they can spend more on advertising and in their final push as we near election day. Uh, and, you know, I was looking at some of the numbers in terms of who's spending the most on advertising in these races. It had been Democrats for some time, which makes sense because of their massive fundraising advantage in some of these head-to-head -head matchups. Uh, but that shifted and Republicans are spending more money now, especially from outside groups that shifted in September. Uh, of course, candidates get this is a little bit inside baseball here, but candidates get a better rate when it comes to advertising. So Democrats, bigger fundraising numbers, spending money, better viewership because they can get more bang out of their buck. But Republicans have really jumped in uh, and started spending big in September, and they're going to continue spending. Uh, and we're going to see a record-breaking spending uh, year for advertising for a midterm cycle, that's for sure. You mentioned the Georgia race, Raphael Warnock versus Herschel Walker, who spent the week denying that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion. Can he recover from this, I don't know, let's call it a fumble. You know, I I, I don't want to make any predictions on that front, uh, but it has been a huge challenge and a huge headline for him uh, for a number of reasons. And, and this is something that we are not going, it's not going to go away before election day. What I will say is it does seem that Republicans Republican Party leadership, I should say, it has really r rallied behind him um, despite the accusations. Uh, those reports are ones that came from the Daily Beast uh, that he paid for the abortion. Uh, it came out more recently this week. He said he denied knowing who this woman was and denied he's been in denying, denying, denying. Uh, but they also reported this week that she's actually the mother of one of his other children. Uh, and so that's, I feel like it could be a slow drip of information moving forward, which continually uh, will have bad headlines for him specifically. But, you know, this race has been very close for some time. Uh, there has been some very controversial headlines that have been out there for some time uh, about him uh, and his past specifically. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether this shifts even some Republicans away or maybe perhaps some independents away uh, from him in the final stretch. Uh, but that really remains to be seen. And I, I don't want to be the one making any predictions specifically on that front. It, it is something we'll keep an eye on. And the reason I think we'll be keeping an eye on it specifically is he even said he's like, well, I, he like he, he talked about this and an abortion. The, the real question here is where he actually stands on abortion at a federal level um, and abortion rights at a federal level, because he's being elected to a position where he actually could weigh in on that. And, and Republicans uh, have been on the campaign trail uh, talking about um, being against abortion rights. They've praised the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, and so his past might contradict his his stance if he is elected. 
his past reportedly could contradict his stance if he is elected. And I think that's where the questions lie. Is this a lot of hypocrisy uh, on his part um, and what that means for the makeup of the Senate moving forward and whether they can, in fact, pass anti-abortion legislation in the Senate with a Republican majority uh, if they move forward on that front. A lot of questions still to be resolved as we head into the final weeks of this uh, midterm election with the control of the Senate on the line here. So Sarah Ewald Weiss, CBS News reporter covering politics and the economy. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. So the book is called The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie, written by Major Garrett and David Becker. Major is here with us now. Major, thanks for being with us. You are, of course, as well as being a I don't know, several time author. <laughs> I always kid you about this. Yes, yes. But five, but who's counting? Me. Five, five books. I don't know how you do it. You keep churning them out, and this is another good one. And let's not forget that Major is also our chief Washington correspondent. So he writes books in his downtime. Crazy, man, crazy. But I, but I really like the book. I like the premise of the book. Let's let's talk about it. Why mm-hmm. did you write this? So David Becker, who's uh, our election law expert at CBS, 25-year career in this space, including time in the Voting Rights Division of the Justice Department in two administrations, Bush and Clinton, came up with the idea of doing two what we've regarded to be really important things. One, explain to those who still have questions about the 2020 election, exactly what happened. We don't confront every conspiracy theory, but we confront most of the oft-repeated ones. And we don't debunk them so much as we just explain exactly what happened and why the things that happened ought to inspire confidence, not just in that election, but in future elections. Because our procedures, Jeff, to conduct elections, which are decentralized, by the way, They're conducted at the local level with state supervision, very little direct federal involvement, so they're localized, are getting better and better. Now, they're under stress now, unnecessary stress, but the actual way we do this is improving each and every election. And we should have confidence in that, not lack confidence, because compared to even 20 years ago, state by state, the way we do our ballots, the way we have them on paper... A paper ballot can't be hacked. It's much more verifiable, checkable, and auditable. And we have a higher percentage of them than ever before, 95% in the 2020 election. Our elections are better in terms of process, verifiability, and transparency than they've ever been. That's one goal. The second goal is to say, for those who attack our election processes, you're doing more than just playing with a political tactic, meaning, oh, I'm going to say I don't believe in the election because that gains me political power. Or if I want to tell people that and want to produce a documentary or something at a rally, I can make money off of it. And that's all pretty innocent. We argue as directly and strongly as we can, that's not innocent. As we argue, if you destabilize belief and trust in American elections, You are on the path to destabilizing the very democratic authority that elections confer. And if you take away authority conferred by elections, 
you are a step closer to anarchy. And that's not anything that we want as a country or we want in any part of our country. Those are the two reasons we wrote the book. Building off what you just said, you talk about the conditions for a, a potential civil war? We actually open up the book that way. And I want to emphasize, as we do in the book, we are not predicting anything. We are not forecasting. We're not saying there's anything inevitable about this, but we are saying that there are dangerous psychic forces at play in American politics. And if we're not careful, and if we don't regard them for the danger that they are, we will begin to normalize them and then take them a step further. And this escalatory move will only lead us to either a very violent civil war or something we argue could be a procedural civil war, a gradual unraveling of our country. And we suggest that could happen if states, for whatever reasons, and we have a very specific scenario in the book I won't take up a lot of time with, if states begin to pull away from each other or pull away from their responsibilities to provide, in the case of our one scenario that opens the book, tax revenue to the federal government, other states could align themselves with that over a grievance about an election. And if those states, let's say they're red states or blue states, but in this case, it's red states, decide not to give revenue to the federal government, then that's an unraveling. And what if other blue states who are sympathetic with the federal government and not the red states say we're no longer going to recognize either the commercial rights or the travel rights or the citizenship rights of other states because they're essentially financial rebellion against the federal government, then we pull apart and no shots are fired. No one's dying in the streets. It's not the actual civil war that we lived through for four years in the late 19th century, but it is a unraveling, a great cleaving of our bonds of union that are cemented not by the Constitution. The Constitution is a set of rules and guidelines. What cements us, Jeff, as a union in this constitutional republic is forbearance, consent, and cooperation. And we wonder very much and fear to a certain degree that those characteristics, those American characteristics of forbearance, tolerance, and cooperation are, have already begun to fray. And over election denialism, they could fray faster and more dangerously. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And you know, the, the evidence of it, in addition to uh, being in your book this past week, the Washington Post had a uh, reporting about uh, the majority of GOP nominees, 299 in all, deny the 2020 election results. And there are people who, who fear that it's a threat to the country's democratic principles. Uh, you know, obviously raising similar concerns to what you raise in the book. And I, I've told people since January 6, you know, imagine if Mike Pence didn't do what he was constitutionally bound to do. I wonder if, you know, people would have been taking up arms in the streets mm -hmm. that day had sure. he not done what he did. Right. Read the Constitution as it's written. Read underlying law, uh, the Electoral Count Act. Uh, and apply them as required. Uh, not a act of tremendous courage, considering that 
that's what the law said, and that's what the Constitution says, and that's your oath to both to carry them out, not to subvert them. But he was under pressure. As you well know, Jeff, in the second chapter of our book, we write an alternate history of the 2016 election. And we wrote that for a very specific reason. What's this alternate history? The alternate history we write is that the Obama Justice Department and the aggrieved candidate Hillary Clinton undergo almost all the same strenuous unconstitutional mechanisms that the actual Trump administration went through, but did it in 2017 to prevent Donald Trump from becoming the president of the United States. And we wrote that chapter to essentially on metaphorical bended knee, go before supporters of the former president and say, look, if these tactics had been used by the Obama Justice Department and Hillary Clinton, you would have rightly and loudly proclaimed them as unconstitutional violations of the rule of law and unacceptable in American life. And you would have been right. Please, we beg of you, see these in the light that they are unconstitutional violations of the law and unacceptable for the furtherance of our democracy. We want this space, this one space in American political life, which historically has been a kind of sanctuary separate from hyper-politicization and grievance and the volatility of polarized politics to return to that place where the administration of elections and the procedures behind them, because they're transparent, because they're audible, because they're verifiable, are left essentially sacrosanct the way they used to be, because they're better than they were even when we left them alone. Now let's leave them alone again in the sense that if we play with them and denounce them illegitimately, we will lose all semblance of what this whole political process is about. Because we campaign for what? A verdict, right? That's why we campaign. And then there's an end date. And then there's what? An election. And what is that election supposed to produce? A verdict. If you live in a verdictless democracy, you don't live in a democracy. What do you envision? What do you predict for the upcoming midterms? I mean, we're about a yeah. month out now. What, what do you think? So, look, this, 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 this can keep people like David and I and lots of election administrators up all the time and all night, and they do. You can imagine all sorts of terrible things. But let's be honest. Several states have already begun early voting which is how they do it. And their state laws are being followed and people are getting their ballots and choosing when to fill them out in accordance with those rules and nothing's happening. Nothing's nothing's askew, which is good. It's a positive sign. Back in 2020, we voted during this pandemic, no vaccines, voting by its very nature, either in putting together and Having people in voting precincts is, of course, not a socially distanced exercise. We had to do that under protocols that try to create safety, but there was no guarantee of safety, and yet we did an election. And all the controversies after the fact were not about the way the election was actually administered. If you remember, Jeff, Election Day 2020 passed without any of the things we were afraid of, confusion, long lines, disagreements. It was pretty placid because a lot of Americans had voted by mail, did so legally in accordance to their state laws. So there is an example of the actual election itself going off just fine. We had one in 2020. All the instability came afterwards from sore losers who couldn't prove their cases in court, though they tried dozens on dozens of times. So what I fear in 2022 is 
Maybe some people get into the polls and get confused or raise a ruckus and there's some destabilizing in precincts. Maybe there's some fist fights. Maybe there's some discord that can sort of domino effect across the country, create more rancor and hostility that could might get out of control, requiring police to supervise or be more aggressive. All of those things are possible. You can't eliminate them as possibilities. The other thing I worry about is I think in all likelihood, we're going to have a great number of close races in Senate and governors and House races. And close races mean we have to give those who count the votes time to do that. And in some states, that's going to take longer than others. And in that in-between time, people can get angry and volatile, even though people who are counting ballots are doing things exactly the way they're supposed to. It just takes some time. So I worry about instability after Election Day when the results aren't revealed yet to the satisfaction of those who are hungering for them. And in that space, things get more volatile than they otherwise should. Those are the two things I worry about. Let's hope. <laughs> Let's hope things go smoothly. Let's hope. Listen, Major, really appreciate your time. The book is The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.